If you'd like to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we're going to be continuing our series through this, this book. The series is called Just That Simple, because the overall theme of the book of John is so that people will believe in Jesus and have life. And we're looking at those individual path stones that he's laid down to lead people to believe in Christ. And one of those stones is in John chapter 4, verses 27 through 38. Page 889 in the Pew Bibles, John 4, 27 through 38. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Heavenly Father, we are opening your word this morning to the Gospel of John, and we want to listen in faith. We want to have ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning, spiritual ears. So Father, we ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We ask for your spirit to be at work in our hearts, in our minds, to open up this passage of Scripture and apply it. So we pray these things in full confidence and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jeremy was taking a road trip. He was heading up north to a cabin. He had planned this for a long time. He was meeting one of his high school friends. They were going to have a guy's weekend. So they were going to be fishing and sitting around the campfire. And as a surprise, Jeremy decided to rent a four-wheeler. So he went to the rental place and backed his truck up to the, the loading dock where they kept all the equipment. And he paid the fee and, and the deposit, and then he loaded up the four-wheeler and, and took off. And when he was about 20 or 30 minutes out, his friend called him, and, and he couldn't contain his excitement any longer. He said, I'm bringing a four-wheeler. And his friend was also excited and then asked, well, did you bring extra gas? And he said, yeah, I brought extra gas. And he said, well, did you bring ramps? And he said, we're not going to be taking this thing off of any ramps. And he said, no, to unload it. And Jeremy realized that in his excitement to, to get the four-wheeler, he had not gotten any ramps and he didn't know how to get it off his truck. So he said, no. And his friend said, you're kidding. He said, no, I don't have ramps. And he said, okay, well, um, this was way out in the middle of nowhere. He said, you don't have time to go anywhere and, and buy ramps. I'll tell you what, uh, I've got a plan. Just, just come, keep coming. And he said, okay. So he arrived at the cabin. They opened up the tailgate. And he looked at his friend and he, he said, okay, what's the plan? He said, all right, um, you get on one side and I'll get on the other side. I think we can lift it to the ground. Now, this was a 700cc four-wheeler. It was the biggest one you could get. It, it weighed over 1,100 pounds. And he said, no, no, that's, that's not going to happen. This thing weighs over half a ton. I'm not going to kill myself unloading this four-wheeler. And he said, okay, all right, no, never, you're right. Um, what do you got, one tie-down strap? Well, let's go over to that tree, throw the strap over the tree branch. And once again, Jeremy thought about his deposit and then saw it sailing away. And he said, no. I can think of half a dozen ways that would, that would turn out bad. Look, you told me you had a plan, so what is it? And his friend said, I told you I had a plan. I never said it was a good plan. 
there are a lot of different plans on how to live life, but there is only one good plan. And in John chapter 4, Jesus' disciples seem like they are somewhat unsure of what Jesus' plan is. They seem somewhat unsure of the part that they play in his plan. So Jesus takes the time to tell them what the plan is. And he also tells them how they're going to participate. He tells them the plan. So we're going to see what Jesus' plan is. And in the application, we're going to talk about how there are many plans to live life, but there's only one good plan. Let's look at this passage. This is John 4, starting at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Our passage begins in verse 27 by saying, just then his disciples came back and they they marveled that he was talking with a woman. If you recall from last week, Jesus had this one conversation with a woman at the well, who is unnamed, and he brought her from unbelief to belief, from being a scandalous sinner to a sanctified saint in one conversation. And even though the disciples marveled that Jesus was talking with this woman, no one asked him what he was doing. No one questioned him. So John makes a point to tell us that the disciples marveled at Jesus' behavior. This tells us a couple of things. Number one, they were surprised. They were surprised he was talking with this woman. In fact, that's how the NIV translates this verse. It says, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. The fact that they were surprised tells us that they had not expected Jesus to be talking with this woman. It, was just, it just wasn't done. It was, it was not conventional. And a Samaritan woman, no less. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. We covered that last week. What was he doing talking to this Samaritan woman? They were surprised. And number two, their surprise tells us that they didn't have Jesus figured out. This event seems to occur relatively early on in his public ministry, And at this point, the disciples, although loyal and faithful to Jesus, 
didn't have him all figured out yet. In other words, they didn't know exactly what the plan was. What was his mission? And what was their role in following him? I mean, if he was going to do something like this, like talk to a Samaritan woman in public, what else was he going to do? And what kinds of things did he really expect from them? In short, this incident tells us that they were unsure of what the plan was. I mean, they didn't even know if it was their place to question Jesus. Look, John tells us that they had questions, but they suppressed them. It's almost as if they were talking amongst themselves saying, look, when we see Jesus do something unusual or something unexpected or strange, are we, are we supposed to ask him about it? Does he want us to question him or, or are we just supposed to roll with it and, and not say anything? They were unsure of what the plan was. In verse 28, we, we hear from the woman again. She has a change of plans. Verse 28 says the woman left her water jar and went away into town. Now, why had she originally come out to the well? To get water. But now she's leaving the well without water. That tells us her plans have changed. As a result of that one conversation with Jesus, her plans had changed. Her priorities had changed. The water was no longer important. The water no longer mattered. The water could wait, but pointing people to Jesus could not wait. She had a change of plans. And that's exactly what she did. She says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She's known Jesus for a few minutes. And she's already sharing and pointing people to him. She's already directing people back to this person that she's put her faith in. And if we break down what she said, we can see that she gave an invitation, she gave a preview, and she asked a question. And I think there's something for us to learn here. So instead of taking this and, and pushing it back to the application, let's, let's deal with it right now. Let's look at this. Number one, she gave an invitation. Come see. That's a straightforward, right down the middle invitation. It's not pushy. She didn't put anybody in a headlock. She wasn't trying to insist that they come and see. You know, if you've, if you've ever seen that, it's, it's not pretty. I don't know if you've ever seen someone insist that someone uh, come to church with them or come to a Bible study. It, they, they keep pushing and pushing on, on this person that really isn't interested and they politely decline, say, no, thank you, no. But eventually they say, no. They react when it's too pushy. This is just a, a straightforward invitation. If you're free on Sunday, why don't you come to church with me? 9.30. I'll be there, you can sit with me. Or, what are you doing Thursday? We've got this Bible study going on in my house. You're welcome to come. An invitation. Number two, a preview. A man who told me all that I ever did. That's a preview. That got them interested. A preview would be something like this. Well, the pastor is going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. Or our small group is, is talking about the question of evil. Or our, our Bible study, uh, it, we're looking at that phrase, repent and believe, and we're, we're going to unpack that together. Why don't you come check it out? And then finally, she asked a question. Can this be the Christ? A question gets people's minds engaged. 
Every time you ask someone a question and you don't supply the answer, it's almost inevitable. We, we can't really help ourselves. You ask a question, our minds already start turning. Okay, the answer is, or I would answer that by saying, it gets us engaged. It can be powerful. There was a man who used to uh, be active in a college ministry, and he, he would go around campus, and he would invite people and evangelize people, and he went to the gymnasium one day, and there was a man doing pull-ups on one of those adjustable pull-up bars. And he came over and he said, uh, hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? And the man said, he was between sets, and he said, no, no, just no. And he could tell the man wasn't very receptive, so he asked a question and he said, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure whether you'd go to heaven or hell? And then he walked away. And the man stood there and he thought about the question and he was about to dismiss it, but it came back and he thought about it a little bit more and all of a sudden he became fixated on that question and, and God used that seed to, to get him interested in pursuing the answers to, to the Bible, to Christ, to, to faith, and that man eventually came to Christ. So questions can be powerful, and that's what we see this woman doing. She gave an invitation, she gave a preview, and she gave a question, and it seemed to have worked. Look at verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him, so it, it, it seemed like it worked. Verse 31, meanwhile, we're back to the disciples and Jesus the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And it still looks like they're unsure of the plan. They'd gone into town to buy food. That was their job, go buy food. And so at this point, they might have been thinking something along the lines of, well, I guess this is the plan. Uh, uh, our job is to go buy food when Jesus needs it. We're kind of like his support staff. Okay, We're, we're his personal assistants. Um, we'll get food, we'll, we'll find places to stay when we need to stay somewhere, we'll, we'll be at his, his advanced team, we'll go and find a place, a, a good place for him to set up and preach, and uh, we can be crowd control, we can be security, we can keep people from, from pushing in on him and, and smothering him, that's, I guess that's our job, that's, that's the plan. Here Jesus, here's your food, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you, know, that you do not know about. And of course, Jesus was speaking spiritually, but they don't get that. So they answer, has anyone brought him something to eat? And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know this isn't the only time where the disciples are somewhat dull or slow to catch on when Jesus switches gears and starts talking spiritually rather than physical and earthly. And we could almost picture Jesus closing his eyes, shaking his head, saying, no, it's, I'm not talking about food. And so in verse 34, he, he tells them the plan. This is where Jesus discloses the plan. Enough misunderstanding, enough confusion. Here's the plan. My food, meaning these things are more important to me than eating. My food, there's nothing more nourishing to me than doing these things. There's, there's nothing more satisfying and sustaining to me than doing these things. There's nothing more enjoyable to me than doing these things. Well, what are the things? He names two. Number one, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Well, what will and what work? 
Now's not the time to start guessing or, or throwing in things that we think it might be. Let's let scripture interpret scripture. Let's look at the immediate context. What just happened? Jesus just had one conversation with a woman and brought her to faith in himself. Or to put it another way, the will of God that Jesus was currently doing is this, proclaiming the Christ to sinners and leading them to faith. That's the will of God. That's what Jesus was doing. Jesus puts it like this in Luke 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's a very concise, short way of summing up what Jesus was just doing and what he means by the will of God. God, to seek and save the lost. Well, how about the work? The work of God that the Father had sent Jesus to accomplish was to fulfill and keep the law of God perfectly. To achieve, to obtain a perfect record of righteousness as a man born of a woman. And we know why. It's because he was sent to do what Adam and everyone else after Adam, including you and me, could never do. He had to live a perfectly righteous life. Remember, Adam was placed in the garden. Adam, the first man, was created. He was placed in the garden to to work it and keep it or tend it and guard it. And as long as Adam did that perfectly, he was going to be given the right to eat from the tree of life, but it was conditional. And of course, we know how it turns out. Adam did not live perfectly. He fell. He sinned. And in Adam, all of humanity was reckoned as sinners. God, in his spiritual economy, set it up that way. He he created the first man and he said, in Adam, you are representing everyone who is to come after you. If you get it right, then everyone else will, will be reckoned or counted as right. If you get it wrong, everyone else will be counted and reckoned as wrong. He got it wrong. In order to correct that, in order to fix that, in order to make a way for us to be with God, he sent Jesus, the second Adam, Scripture calls him, to get it right. To live a perfectly righteous life. That is the way that God has opened the door to salvation. Salvation is delivering us from the greatest evil, sin, and delivering us to or handing us over to the greatest good, which is fellowship with God. The only way that could happen is if there was a second Adam who got it right, and then that person's righteousness, Jesus's, can be credited and reckoned to those who put their faith in him. Romans 5.19 summarizes the plan by stating, For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus also said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus was daily hourly, minute by minute, fulfilling all righteousness. That's what he did his entire life. He fulfilled all righteousness. He perfectly obeyed God's law in thought and action and deed. Every heart motivation for everything that laid behind, that, that stood behind everything he did outwardly was perfect 
He did it. Ministering to the woman at the well was part of living in perfect obedience to the law. He brought conviction. He taught on right worship. He led her to faith. Those are all righteous works. So Jesus discloses this plan to his disciples to do the will, meaning to seek and save the lost, and to accomplish his work, fulfilling all righteousness. That's the plan. To seek and save the lost and fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus is doing. That's his mission. And he's made that clear. Now, he's going to lay out what their role is going to be in that plan. Because their role is going to look a little differently than Jesus. They are not going to the cross. Jesus has a very unique role to play in the redemptive plan of God. They're not going to the cross. They're not going to live perfectly righteous lives. So Jesus lays out how they fit into the plan. Verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So first of all, he's quoting a proverb or a well-known saying. There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. You can see here, it kind of, it's kind of got that sing-songy, rhymey, it's easy to remember. There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. And then immediately after this, or immediately after that proverb, he makes a statement. Here's his point. By quoting the proverb, Jesus is saying people are very good at calculating the time until the harvest. Because it matters to them. They long for it. They anxiously await it. The harvest is important to people. Why? Because it means full barns, full stomachs, and full money bags. That's why. Nobody's going to miss the harvest. It's that important to them. They're continually looking for it. And then the second line, in contrast, the harvest that really matters, the spiritual harvest, people are blind to it. They're not looking for it. They don't see it. So Jesus is telling his disciples, I don't want you to miss the spiritual harvest, the one that really matters. Three times he tells them, look, lift up your eyes, see that the fields are white for harvest. A white for harvest is another agricultural reference. When a wheat plant grows, it's, it's green, it's lush, it's vibrant, it's full of moisture. But when it becomes time for harvest, it dries out and it changes, not pure white, but in contrast to the green plant, when you gaze out upon a wheat field, it almost looks white. So it's white for harvest. And Jesus is saying, when you see that, you know it's time to reap. It's time to gather now. If you don't get it now, you risk losing the crop. The plan is to seek and save the lost. The plan is a spiritual harvest, and you, disciples, are going to be a part of it. And it starts right now. The interesting thing is, if, if the Samaritans from the town were coming out to see Jesus at the woman's invitation, they may have been approaching at this point. And if that's the case, Jesus is telling his disciples, do you see these people coming? Do you see these Samaritans that are, that are drawing near? They're ready. They're ready to believe in the gospel. They're seeking God. They want truth. They're, they're ready for the Messiah. They're ready to be harvested spiritually, just like the woman at the well was. Verse 36, already or even now, 
the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. If someone's earning wages, then, then what's happening? They're working. Unless somebody get paid without working? I, I haven't seen that. Uh, if you're working, um, then you're getting paid. If you're getting paid, then, then you're working. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the reaper is working now. It's happening. It's already time to reap, receiving wages and gathering fruit. Once again, he's not talking about earthly. He's not talking about wages in the sense of getting paid on Friday or the 15th of the month. He's not talking about gathering fruit like oranges and apples. He's talking spiritually. Spiritually. He's talking about faithful work done by God's people and everyone who's called or gathered into the kingdom of God. Both of these things are eternal. And this is why the spiritual harvest is infinitely greater than any kind of earthly harvest we could bring in. Food is eaten or it spoils. It doesn't last forever. Money is spent or it's worthless on the day we die. You can't take it with you. Serving the Lord results in eternal reward. Salvation lasts forever. Heaven and hell are for an eternity. This is why the spiritual harvest is greater. He says, So the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now it will become clear in verse 38 that the disciples are the reapers. So who are the sowers? And why are the sowers and reapers rejoicing together? Well, it's always a good idea to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians to shed a little bit more light on what the Bible means when it talks about sowers and reapers. Now, Paul uses slightly different language, but he's talking about the same thing. Still the agricultural reference. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-9 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each one, uh, each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You can hear the similarities, the wages, working, sowing, plants maturing. It's, it's, he's talking about the same thing. And here in John 4, we see, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. So both of these verses teach us that there are multiple people working together, but at different times for the same Lord and for the same goal and following the same plan to seek and save the lost. The sower, when speaking spiritually, is anyone who proclaims, speaks, teaches, challenges, encourages, or points someone to Jesus Christ and the gospel. The reaper is one who is actually present doing all those things when the person repents and believes. They're both doing the same work. The reaper gets to be there when all the action happens. The reaper gets to be there when someone actually comes to faith. And if we think back, if you're a believer here this morning, if you think back in your own life, this is true. You can think back at some sowers, your parents, We recently heard several professions of faith to a person. Their parents, praise God, were sowing seeds. Maybe a godly aunt or an uncle, maybe a grandparent 
Maybe a Sunday school teacher or a pastor. Maybe a friend. Maybe a believing friend who shared scripture with you or or pointed you to Christ. Maybe somebody you heard on TV or, or even the radio. Just a snippet of something. All these sowers. But when you came to Christ, it may very well have been under the teaching or preaching of someone else. In fact, it it could work like this. Maybe you heard hundreds of sermons as a child, but they were all kind of going over your head, missing the heart, and then you fell away for a while. And then as an adult, you came back, and, and under God's providence, you heard one sermon, and during that one sermon, the Spirit of God convicted you of your sin and brought you to repentance and belief. The one preaching that one sermon, reaper. Reaper. He's not working alone. There were all kinds of sowers that came before the reaper. They're not always the same person, but they could be. They could be the same person, but they often aren't because of the nature of life. We, we grow up, we, we move, we can take different jobs. We, people come into our life, people go out of our life. That's just the way it works. We lose touch with friends. We make new friends. So the sower and the reaper are not always the same person. But here's the thing. Jesus says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They both rejoice when someone comes to Christ. What matters is the people that hear the truth of the gospel. And what matters is people come to faith. What matters is the lost are are sought and are saved. That's why both the sower and the reaper rejoice together. They're all following the same plan. Verse 38 says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is telling them the plan and where they fit. And he's saying, look, you're going to join me in this work of bringing in a spiritual harvest. But I want you to know you're not the first ones on the scene. You're, you're not the first responder here. There have been other people that have come before you and that have sown. Like who? Well, prophets, faithful teachers. John the Baptist, for sure, should be included in the sowers that came before the harvest that's going to be coming in and is coming in. Jesus tells his disciples, you get to reap. Those people that have come before you have sown spiritual seeds. You get to see the fruit. You get to see the outcome of the work that has been done before you. Jesus is telling his disciples, we are here to seek and save the lost. We are here to bring in a spiritual harvest. So stop fixating on food and start implementing the plan. And I can't help but wonder, after this conversation, if the disciples had a turning point in their understanding of what the plan was. A turning point in what the the mission of Jesus was and what they were called to do as, as disciples of Jesus. It's almost as if they were saying, okay, yeah. Yeah, I get it. We're we're not personal assistants, right? We're not your advance team. What I'm hearing is you want us to join you in the work of seeking and saving the lost and bringing in the spiritual harvest. Okay. We get it. That's the plan. We're with you. Let's 
summarize this chapter, this, this passage. And to summarize, we would say this, when Jesus' disciples returned from getting food, they were surprised to find him talking with a Samaritan woman, but they did not question his actions. The woman who recently placed her faith in Jesus went immediately into town to point others to Jesus, and she made this her first priority. Jesus revealed to his disciples that his food was to do the will of the Father and to accomplish the work that had been given to him. He then directed his disciples' attention to the spiritual harvest and told them that although others had gone before them as sowers, they were called to enter the harvest as reapers. When people repent and believe in Jesus, all those who have labored in the harvest rejoice because all share in God's redemptive plan to seek and save the lost. That's how we summarize this middle section of John chapter 4. That's what this passage is about. That's the plan, to seek and save the lost. This is not a new plan. This is a very old plan. In fact, this is an eternal plan. It's that old. Ephesians 1 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This plan goes back to eternity past. It's not new. God has told us that whoever repents of their sin and turns to Jesus and trusts him for the forgiveness of their sins, God will apply that perfect, righteous record of Jesus Christ to them. This is where that Adam-Jesus relationship comes into play again. God promises the one who places their faith in Christ, I will impute or reckon or credit the righteousness of Christ to you. And I will impute your sin to Jesus. And he will pay for that sin on the cross. That's what scripture teaches. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's talking about Christ. It's an exchange. John summarizes this earlier in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This, this is the gospel. This is the plan. This is how the spiritual harvest is brought in, by believing in the Son. That's what this book is about, believing in the Son. That's the plan. But if God is bypassed, if God's plan is rejected, or if God's word is ignored, that's when people start to come up with their own plan. Here are some actual plans I've heard from people over the years. Plan number one, I'm going to live my life the best I can. I will try to do more good things than bad things and hope everything works out in the end. That's their plan. But scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Doing our best isn't going to work out. We've all sinned. We've all broken all ten commandments. All of us have lied. All of us have stolen something that doesn't belong to us. All of us have had lustful, impure thoughts. All of us have failed to 
to perfectly obey our parents and honor them perfectly. All of us have failed to, to worship God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly our entire life. We've all broken all Ten Commandments. There's, there's no amount of good that's going to get rid of that sin. It only takes one sin before a holy and righteous and wrathful God to damn us. So that plan's not going to work. How about this one? I'm going to live my life however I want. I'm not really into reading the Bible or going to church. I don't need church. I don't need church to be a good person. But scripture says no one is good except God alone. If someone's out there thinking, I'm a a fairly good person, you're deceiving yourself. You're under the spell of self-deception. Because scripture tells us the truth, no one is good except God alone. You're comparing yourself to others. You're, you're playing the relative game. I'm, I'm good relative to someone else. And you're selecting people who have outward evil that is observable, that, that it, that's worse than yours. And you're saying, well, at least I'm better than that person, so that makes me good. Scripture says, no. No, no one is good. That plan isn't going to work. How about this one? I'm going to live according to this religion or that religion or this belief system or that belief system, fill in the blank. Any of the world religions, any belief systems. Because in the end, they all worship the same God. And it really doesn't matter because they all lead to him, right? Scripture says in Isaiah, before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If someone is telling you that all religions are the same or that all faith systems or belief systems lead to the same God, they're lying to you. That's simply not true. In fact, none of these are good plans. (laughs) They're plans But none of them are good. This is like uh, trying to lift a a half-ton vehicle out of a truck by yourself. This is like throwing a tie-down strap over a branch and hoping for the best while standing underneath it. No, they all result in catastrophic failure. The Word of God in Psalm 146 says this, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation, when, he breathe, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Someone might say this. Well, I, I, my plan is this. I'm an atheist. Uh, so I don't believe in God. So none of this really applies to me. And I'm not going to be a part of that harvest. I don't have to worry about any harvest. In reply... Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Everyone understands at the deepest recesses of their their heart and their mind that there is a God. Atheists, unbelievers are very skilled at suppressing the truth of God, not thinking of it, forcing themselves to, to, to believe the lie that there is no God. But everyone knows that God exists. But they are correct in saying they won't be a part of the harvest 
in John 4, but they are incorrect in saying they won't be a part of any harvest. Because in John 4, talks, Jesus is talking about a spiritual harvest. Those who place their faith in Christ and are saved and are, are given salvation. But Jesus talks about another harvest later on in Matthew at the end of the age when Christ returns. And it's, he says this, the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Do you see how Jesus ends that that passage with he who has ears, let him hear. This is, once again, he's not talking about literal ears on the side of our head. He's talking about spiritual ears. He's talking about the ability to spiritually hear and discern the truth of God in Scripture. And not everyone is given spiritual ears to hear. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. God opens our ears to hear the word of God. God opens our eyes to see the truth of Scripture. Have you heard what God is saying in John 4? Do you understand what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about a spiritual harvest? And then again, when he talks about the harvest at the end of the age, do you understand what Scripture means when it says no one is good except God alone and how all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Have you heard and understand these words? Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you have heard these words, if that's true, what is your plan? What is your response? If you're already saved, if you're a believer here this morning, which I'm assuming the vast majority of us are, will you recommit to joining Jesus Christ in his plan? Will you recommit to seeking and saving the lost? Will you recommit to intentionally take steps to invite, give a preview, ask a question, to point people to Jesus Christ? If you're not saved, will you abandon any and all plans to live your life apart from Jesus Christ. We renounce your own plan to try to live good enough and hope things work out at the end. Here's what God says and promises to those who put their faith in Christ. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never believed upon Jesus Christ, there's no reason to put it off. The harvest is now more than ever. To yourself, pray, pray to God. Tell him that you're a sinner. Ask for forgiveness. Commit your life to him. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
I promise you on the authority of scripture, if you turn to him in faith, he will save you. Your sins will be forgiven. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this passage and for giving us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us. And you point us to your son. You point us to belief and faith in Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who have not has not believed upon Jesus, we ask that they would do so right now. That they would turn to you in faith. That they would recognize the, the foolishness of any and, and all other plans to live life. And Father, for those of us in Christ, we, we desperately want to serve you, please you to the best of our ability. Will you give us more of your grace, more of your spirit, so that we can engage and participate in the plan to seek and save the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.